Hey friends, welcome back to the Pulpit to Pew podcast in this week's adult Bible study, the final adult Bible study in our mini-series on the life of Elijah. And today we are going to go back and revisit Elijah as he's sitting there by the juniper tree, a much different Elijah than what we met the last couple of weeks. We're going to look at some of the reasons behind that and how God handled this discouraged, depressed prophet. So thank you for being here for all of this series. And we're next week, there will be nothing on Sunday mornings at our church for Sunday school. So I won't be posting anything on here unless I come back with an announcement one. We'll see how that goes, depending on how the week goes. But we will be back in a couple weeks with a brand new study. We haven't even announced what it is because we haven't decided what it is yet for our church. But of course, I will try to record and I will try to bring it here and put it on the podcast for you to listen to as well. I know we are brainstorming some ideas that are pretty neat, some that will take, if we go this route, it will take us a long time to cover everything, um, if we go that route. So we've got a few options, so, so pray with us about that. I'm also, I'll just say this by way of tease, I'm working on a few new projects, some of which I don't know if I will tell you about soon, because I'm eager and I usually jump in too early. Or if I may, just work on them for a few months and then tell you and let you jump on board if you want. I'll see. But i got a few things up my sleeve that I'm praying about working towards in case God says, you know what, just continue. So, um, something I learned today, I'm rambling now, but in today's uh, sermon, he's talking about loneliness and and um, and he talked about, and we talked about it, two things happened in Elijah, God's answer to Elijah, you're going to see today, was Elijah, you know, get up and go do the work. That was the second part of his answer. But then Paul, in his loneliness, um, I noticed a verse that I enjoyed. It said that God, uh, God's presence was with him, and God strengthened him, and then God told him to go preach and get, get busy. Not that I'm feeling a sense of loneliness, but um, it could be easy sometimes to just say, you know what, I think I'm done. But today God spoke my heart a little bit about, hey, you know what, let's let's keep busy. And uh, so I'm going to work towards that end right now. I'm looking forward to a few new, new projects and new opportunities possibly. So you pray along with me. But I went so long in this introduction, and I already went really long in this lesson, so I should delete this, but I'll leave it. Enjoy Lesson 6 as we look into Elijah's life. Have a great week. All right, let's take our Bibles, go to 1 Kings chapter 19. Hope you're doing well. <clears throat> we have been uh, on this on this six-week kind of journey with Elijah. We've seen him in the throne room, as he said, it will not rain until the Lord says so. He, we've seen him down at the brook Cherith, as he learned to trust God. We've seen him at the widow's house, as he got to see the power of God. As, he late, um, as her son died and he was able to bring him back from the dead, he was also able to see this food go from nothing to a continuous amount of food. We've seen him briefly as he met Obadiah. We've watched him on the Mount Carmel as he battled the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Groves. We've seen him go a little higher on Mount Carmel as he prayed for it to, to rain now after three and a half years. And after seven times of sending that servant, it finally did rain. Last week we finished by watching after he prayed for it to rain, he ran ahead of Ahab. Ahab was in the chariots heading to Jezreel, and he was going to meet up with Jezebel there and let her know what happened. Basically, everybody, all those prophets that had sat at her table, the Bible says, that 
That phrase has stood out with me more this time teaching through Elijah than ever before. But um, those prophets that had sat at the table of Jezebel were now all dead. And so Ahab was rushing back at the orders really of Elijah and he was heading back to say it's going to rain now here's what all happened and he's on his way back and then God's hand it says the Lord's hand was upon Elijah and Elijah got up and ran I don't think he was training for a marathon I don't think that was what he was um, it was just another day for him no I think the hand of the Lord was upon him and he went and ran it's estimated 18 miles which I would need the hand of the Lord upon me to run 18 miles right now but uh he took off and ran. He actually got ahead of the chariot. He beat it there. But the next day, Jezebel, after hearing word of what's happened, she got upset. And she sent message to Elijah saying that what you've done to those prophets is going to happen to you by the end of the day. Basically, she said that by the end of the day, we are going to make sure, I'm going to make sure that you're dead. She was upset. And she was the type of lady that could back up. She had the power and the resources to back up her threat. And uh, so she was very intimidating to the point that now Elijah has made his way. Did I get, where, I don't remember where exactly I left off, but I think I left off where he has made his way to the juniper tree. And he sat down at that juniper tree and he said that it's better that I just die. And that's where we left off last week. And I emphasized several things last week. Number one, I emphasized probably the physical stress he's been under the physical stress of of being gone all day watching because remember the prophets of Baal they had basically from morning to evening that they were trying to call down fire from heaven he was sitting around watching all of that and then he we we know he physically he ran all the way there he's been going a lot who we don't know the sleep that's been going on we said there was a physical pressure that he's been under over the last day we talked about the mental stress that he had to be under. I mean, just you've got all of these Israelites that you're that you they're your people that you're ministering to, and they're for the prophets of Baal, or they're on the fence. Remember, he said, "How long halt you between two opinions?" And they're kind of on the fence, and you're you're burdened for these people, which brings in the emotional stress of it. I mean, you're watching all this happen. Uh, you're watching what happens to the people, and then. The emotional stress of when you feel like I am serving God and you just hear word that you're going to be dead by the end of the day by the most powerful woman on the planet who doesn't like you very much. And so there's a lot of physical, mental, emotional stress that he's under and he sits down underneath this tree and he says, I might as well just die. Let's look at it. Let's back up and look. Verse number four, he, by the way, he's alone too, which is, I think my dad said he's going to preach on loneliness tonight, or today, this morning. So loneliness isn't a powerful emotion, it's a powerful thing to deal with, meshes with your mind at times, but he said that in verse, let's see, verse 3, he says, and he went and saw that, and he arose, and he went for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. He, he's now all alone. He's put himself in that situation. He didn't take his servant with him. I think he should have. But he was depressed. He was frustrated under a lot of stress. Verse 4, And he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down upon a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. And he says, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. We saw last week that 
a few things I mentioned, and I'll say it real quick here at the beginning, that he was looking at the wrong things. It says, when he saw that, that was the threat from Jezebel. And all of a sudden, that threat from Jezebel, and rightfully so, became a huge obstacle in his mind. I think I would have feared too. It's easy to stand here thousands of years later and go, why was he worried about that? It's easy to say. But when you're sitting there and you're physically, emotionally, mentally stressed, and then the most powerful woman says this, it's easy to see that, as the Bible says. But, spiritually speaking, he looked at that and took his eyes off the God that just sent fire from heaven. He took his eyes off the God that fed him with ravens. He took his eyes off the God that resurrected a child. He took his eyes off the miracle-working God to look at a very powerful human being. But a powerful human being is nothing compared to our miracle-working God. And we can get in the same place. How are we? We're going to find ourselves at our juniper trees. And I'm not saying you're going to find yourself wanting to die or kill yourself. I'm not saying that. I'm saying your juniper tree of depression, of giving up, of frustration. You can find yourself at that juniper tree when we get our eyes off our miracle-working God. Every one of us, if we were to sit down right now and just say, let's list off what we've seen God do in our lifetime for us. Some things, may, we, when we say it, may seem small to others, but to us it's a big deal. But we've seen, hopefully, you've seen God answer prayer. When he saw that, he saw the wrong things. He took his eyes off God. He sought the wrong things. It says he went for his life. Before, he only went at God's call. He went down to Cherith because it says God told him to get to Cherith to hide himself. He wasn't trying to protect himself. God was protecting him. He went down to Zipporah to meet the widow because God told him to go down there to protect him. Here, God didn't tell him to leave. He's trying to protect himself. He's taking things into his own hands now. What is that equivalent to in our modern day? Because no one's going to leave here and God's going to tell you you need to leave. You need, what is that equivalent to? He's, he went from protect, letting God guide him to now he's trying to take things in his own hands. I think that's an equivalent today to you and I saying, I don't pray. Because when I don't pray, I'm just taking things in my own hands. All right, I'm going to figure out this problem. I'm going to figure out this financial problem. I'm going to figure out this work problem. I'm going to figure out this kid problem. I'm going to figure out this marriage problem. And we don't pray about it. And what we're saying is, I'm going to go down and figure this out. It says he went for his life. He went to take his own life in his own hands to try to figure this out. And no wonder why, because you and I, we can't live this Christian life on our own. We need God. We are to walk in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And when the lust of the flesh gives in, it's going to always fall short, and it's going to lead us to our juniper tree of frustration and discouragement and depression. Because he tried, he sought the wrong things. He sought it in his own strength and said, instead of trusting in God. And the same, I think that's equivalent to you and I today, to just saying, I don't pray. And, and that phrase is in itself saying, I'm going to go figure it out myself. We need to be men and women of prayer. I mean, we, we can cry out to the miracle-working God of this universe, the creator of this world, that has said, just pray. Now, think of all the excuses that maybe if you're struggling with prayer, Satan's telling you right now. Think it, just, if, I wish I could like say, push a button and pop all those excuses on that whiteboard right there, and it starts going, boom, here goes down. Oh, here's Jim's excuses. Boom, look at there. Oh, let's move over. Here's Jeff's excuses. Look at there. Here's Brad's excuses. Look at here. I can't push that button. But Satan's got these reasons in our head. Well, 
I don't know how to pray. I used to have one guy I was working with, discipleship. He goes, well, I just don't know how to pray. I said, just talk. Just think. My, one of my favorite verses says that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. That's talking. Or even think. I don't even need to say a word. I could just get really quiet right now. I'd get awkward in here and just sit here. And I could pray. And God can still hear it. And God can still answer. We just got to pray. We say, some people say, well, I just don't know how to pray. Some say, well, you don't know my life and what I've done. doesn't matter. Last I checked, David was an adulterer and a murderer. And God still answered his prayers. Paul persecuted the church. Man, and he was a prayer warrior. I don't know any murderers in here. If you are, don't even tell me because I'll be intimidated. But God answers prayer. So there's no excuse. We need to get right with God. Maybe there's some sin. The main thing that we don't usually excuse is there's sin in our life that we just don't want to confess. We kind of, it's like a pet sin that we enjoy, and we know it breaks God's heart. We don't want to give it up. We like that pet sin, and we know that that sin is hindering our relationship with God. That's usually where it falls into play. But he was seeking the wrong things, and then he said the wrong things. He says, I am not better than my father's. Well, first of all, who told him that he was better than his father's? But God's not comparing us to anybody else. God's not looking down in this room and saying, well, there's some in here that are better than others. No, God loves every single one of us. So the circumstances crippled Elijah at this point. I think there was emotions that played into this, and I, I, I haven't really said this yet, so I will say this. Don't um, underestimate the, the power of physical, emotional, mental stress. If you have one of those type of jobs, it can drive you to the flesh. If you're overwhelmed, you can get discouraged and depressed. And sometimes the best thing you can do is get some rest, which we're going to see in a minute. Sometimes the best thing you can do is have a good, healthy meal. Sometimes the best thing you do is go take a run or go take a walk. And there's some physical things that you can do that don't replace prayer, don't replace depending on God. But they're given to us, the abilities by God, to help us in our natural things. This isn't a health class, but find a hobby that's going to help you to to de-stress. There's a physical side of this and the spiritual side of this that happens. Um, so th there were circumstances that crippled him, and I'll get more into that. But notice the compassion that calmed him. Look at verse 5. It says, And he, and as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Notice this compassion here. I, I, I first In this verse, I see God's gentleness. God's not rebuking him. He sends an angel down. And instead of rebuking him, saying, here's probably what I would have said. I would have probably said, hey, what, are you still that same prophet that just called fire from heaven and just prayed after three and a half years and then rain? What are you doing here? Look at yourself. Get up. And That's what I would have said, probably with a little sterner voice. But God was very gentle with him. He sends an angel down. And the angel just says, hey, hey, get up. Have something to eat. Fixed him breakfast. And he says, just get something to eat. Why don't we deal with the problem here, God? Because God is handling him very gently. You know what I think? I can't prove this. I think God knew he's had a pretty rough couple days. I think God knew he just needed a good meal to get started. So God handled him very gently. 
I'll tell you what, I'm thankful God handles Brad McClure very gently at times, because there's some times that I need to be shaken, I need to be reminded, but God is very gentle with us. His gentleness comes through, which isn't gentleness one of the fruit of the Spirit? It's, it's something that God tells us to have. I think of the passage often in Timothy, it says, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. And we see the gentleness, the compassion, and this gentleness that was that, that was shown here. He wasn't a dictator that was warning him with like a baseball bat. He was just gentle with his servant. He realized he's had a long couple of days. And he said, hey, wake up. Here's something to eat. And sometimes it's where it starts. We just need to get some good food in our belly. But then not only was he gentle, but he was gracious. It may sound the same, but... You know, instead of judgment here, the Lord showed him grace. I, I, a couple of thoughts here. The grace of his presence. God didn't abandon him when Elijah abandoned God. God wasn't just there for the big moments of faith. God was there during the low moments by the juniper tree. And that's one of the, the, the gracious things about our God is he's there for us even in our lowest moments. He was there for us even in our worst of moments. He's there for David when he was killing Goliath, but he was also there with David whenever David was broken over his sin with Bathsheba. God is there with us. There was the grace of his presence. Elijah was running from God, but God never left him. I'm thankful that times when we run away from God and we start to handle things in our own strength, God's presence is still with us. But then we see God's provisions, not only his presence, but his provisions. He met the needs. Even when Elijah was going his own way, he met his, his, gave him food. He met Elijah's needs back when he was living by faith by the brook Cherith. And if we were just everyday people looking at this, we'd say, well, yeah, of course God's going to feed his servant. I mean, if we look past the miracle of the ravens and all that. But maybe we would say, well, yeah, of course he did. He just boldly stood before a king and he just boldly said it's not going to rain. All of this is faith. No wonder why God took care of him by the brook Cherith. Well, what's the reason here now? Because right now he's running for his life. He's depressed. He's saying, just kill me. Why would God feed him now? Because God is gracious and kind and compassionate. He provides for us in the good and the bad. His presence is with us. And we've seen, of course, then God's patience. God didn't write him off because God still had a plan for him. God's still going to use him. I think maybe you come into this class and maybe everything's going great for you. That's wonderful. But there's going, to hit a, there's going to come a day when you hit a wall and you're discouraged and you want to quit and you've, you've, maybe get, you've given back into a sin that you've been seeing some victory on for years. And maybe you, you've, you've done some foolish things and you're going to think, oh, God's abandoned me. No, no, no. It doesn't mean that God's not broken over this. It doesn't mean that you don't grieve the Spirit. But God's presence is still with you. He'll still provide He's still patient with us, but we need to cry out to him and ask forgiveness. So in this case, Elijah was discouraged, and God was he showed him some compassion. But then notice this confrontation. Let's read down a few more verses. Verse 6, it says, And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and the cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. So he's getting rest here. I think... I'm avoiding this, and I don't know why. I don't know if I'm avoiding it on purpose or not, but I do think there's a physical aspect to it as well. He ate and he rested. He laid down again and rested. I just feel like sometimes in our busy society, we get so overwhelmed, and then when we get discouraged, we think, well, 
I must have something wrong. It may just be that you are overwhelmed. Rest, eat, walk, pray. Walking and praying, I think if I had to put a note on one, walk or jog and pray. If you can jog, jog. If you can walk, walk. Spend some time in prayer. Combine a physical exercise with a spiritual exercise, a spiritual discipline, and you will find help in a lot of stress. I'm not a medical doctor, so there's my whatever that you're supposed to say. I'm not a medical doctor, but I find that walking or jogging and prayer combined brings a lot of relief from stress. All right. And, well, do I go down that road more or no? Let me say this. If you have a lot of kids, you're like, I just can't do that. If you have kids or grandkids, a lot of business, ask your spouse to help. And as a spouse, look and say, you may need to go walk and do this. Let me take care of the kids. Let me clean up the dishes. Let me do something. Because that will help work together on that because there's a physical and spiritual aspect to that. All right, so, but notice this as we keep reading here. It says in verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. <laughs> Same thing, but he already let him rest. He was sleeping some more. He says, Because the journey is too great for thee. I think here is just the acknowledgement from God or his angel here. He's just acknowledging that this has been a big journey and what you've got left to do is still a big journey. God recognized the limitations that we have on our physical body. You know, God, God can go run forever and it doesn't bother him. God can do anything, but God understands that we as humans have physical limitations. So he says, arise and eat a second time. Then he told him, lay down, rise and eat. That's the second time. And then he says, the journey you got ahead, the journey you had is too great. You can't do this on your own. God notices the physical. And he asks us to address that. Verse 8, and he arose and he did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. It's just a, it's a long time here, but God is going to be teaching him something. Starting in verse 9, God's going to now start to confront his actions. He says in verse 9, and he came thither into the cave and lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and have slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So I'll come back to that. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break the, piece, the pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice into him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? The exact same question. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain the prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am, am only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Same answer. And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael, to be king over Syria, get back to work. And Jehu, the son of Nish, Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, get back to work. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, 
Get back to mentoring. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. He says, you're not the only one left. He said it twice. I'm the only one left. Everybody else at least said, no, you're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 others over here that haven't bowed to Baal. And it just is a little humble reminder that, you know, we're not the only Christian that's struggling. We're not the only Christian that's actually serving. There are some people right now probably hiding. Well, their time's different, but hiding out in other countries, meeting for church, uh, praying, worshiping God, that, and you and I are in the nice air conditioning talking. Doesn't mean that we're any worse for that or any better for that. It just means there are some good Christians across this globe that we need to be thankful for. But God's confronting him about a few things. He confronts some of his assumptions. Elijah made really two foolish assumptions. And uh, one was that he was that he was forsaken, basically, and that he was finished. He was thinking in the sense that I'm done, this is it, and God has forsaken me. But God reminded him, hey, I, I, I haven't forsaken you. No one else has forsaken you. As I've already said, there's another 7,000 out there. And God reminded him that his ministry wasn't over either. I think it's interesting that God was very gentle with him at first. He said, arise and eat, get some sleep, arise and eat. And then he said, now go down here in this journey. And I want to show you what I want you to do. And he gave him his next mission. He didn't say, you need to retire, you're done. He said, go anoint this king, go anoint this king, and go find Elisha. Now, I don't have time to teach on Elisha. But Elisha's, Elisha uh, is, is going to be a wonderful prophet. It's going to do two times the amount that the miracles that Elijah did. And Elijah is going to go and take, and he's going to take his mantle and cast it over him. And Elisha is going to become the next prophet in his stead, in a sense. Later, Elijah is going to be taken up in a whirlwind. He's going to be taken up into heaven. He doesn't have to see death. And Elisha is going to go out, find his mantle, take it, make a great prayer to God about a double portion of this, of everything that you had on Elijah. I want it. And God answers that. And Elisha becomes a great prophet of God. But... That happened because Elijah had to go find him and mentor him for some time that God wanted. You know, there may be some Elishas out there in our church and in our family and our ministry that God wants us to take our, not throw a mantle in a sense, to throw our arms around, throw our prayers around, and just be a, a mentor to some of these people. Just try to encourage them. Just try to, uh, you know, I think this, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but a lot of these children in our church, we need those children to, to, to grow up, to live and serve God in this, in this country that is falling apart, do we not? You know, one small little part that could be is just acknowledging them, just saying, hey, how are you doing? What's your name? And just praying for them. Just, just showing an interest in this. Some of these kids, are they're, they're going to grow up in a confused world, and if they see the love of God in your life and mine, it may seem like a small part, but it makes a difference to show that you care and pray for them. Remember, and then the next time you see them, say, hey, you know what? I was praying for you. I remember you said this. And pray for them, care for them. Thankful for all the teachers we have in our church and the ministry workers that we have on Wednesday nights that work with the children. But it could be an adult too. It could be a young adult. But find someone. Elisha did that. God said, hey, I'm not done with you. I'm going to use you still. But you've, you've got to get back to work. And so he. sometimes the best thing to do when we're by our juniper tree and we're ready to quit is just get back up and get back to what God wants you to do. Say, well, I'm discouraged right now. Okay, 
Get back and read your Bible. But I don't feel like it. Get back and read your Bible. I mean, Elisha was still the same guy. Elijah, excuse me, was still the same guy by that juniper tree. It's been 40 days now. He's heard the voice of God, a still small voice. But he still faces those same temptations. But now God has given him a mission. He says, go find, anoint this king. Go anoint this king. Go find Elisha. And sometimes the best thing you and I can do after, I think, doing the prayer and walking, whatever you need to do, is just get back to work. Just go. Just do it. You say, well, I don't feel like it. Okay, feelings are such a, a crippling thing sometimes. We can't, it does, well, I don't feel like reading my Bible. Okay, well, read it. Spend some time with God. Just, I don't feel like going to church. It doesn't matter. Do it. Obey God. And that's what Elijah was going to learn here. I just need to get up and I need to obey God. God has been very gentle with him, but now he's saying, let's get going. And sometimes that's the message we need. And I think a lot of times that's where we start, though, as, as, as sometimes leaders will start with that. We're like, oh, just get up and go. Well, it may be that they are physically, emotionally, and mentally stressed. They need to rest. They may need to rest. They may need some of that. But other times, we just need that little kick that says, let's get back to work. Don't forget what you're doing. You're serving the Lord. You're making a difference in people's lives. But what about all Ahab and Jezebel? Let's just flip over to just for a few minutes. Let's flip over and see you. We've had spent a lot of time with Ahab. We've spent a lot of time with Jezebel. So what happens to them? Well, now Elijah's kind of went his way. We'll bring him back in in a little bit. But Ahab is still king. Jezebel is still queen. And they are still wicked. And then there's this vineyard that comes up. And I don't want to read the whole story. But let's just go for a few verses to get us warmed up in chapter 21. And look at verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth... The Jezreelite, who's going to turn out to be a very godly man. But Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money." So Naboth had this vineyard. Let's say this is the wall of the palace. And his vineyard came right up to that wall. And, and Ahab wanted it. And so he says, hey, I, I'd like to have that. I will give you stuff for it. Or I will pay you for it. And I'll give you well worth what it's worth, maybe even more. Well, I'll give you enough money for what it's worth. I feel like I mumbled that there. I'll give you enough money for what it's worth, maybe even a little bit more. And Naboth now is in a position where the king wants his land. Seems like a good offer. You're going to make a lot of money. But he says no. Now, I don't have time to get into all of this because this isn't the actual lesson. Um, and let me find the reference for you real quick in case you want to check it out and see if I'm really telling you the truth or not. I heard Brian McBride preach one of my favorite messages when I was a kid, by the way, on this passage. He called it not for sale back in that day. But, but back in Leviticus chapter 25... And in Numbers 36, and maybe even a little bit in Ezekiel 46, God had said to them, and the word of the Lord was clear, that the king couldn't buy the inheritance of the people. And Naboth had inherited this land, but according to the Israelite scriptures, the king couldn't take or buy the land that someone had inherited. And Naboth, turns out, knew the scripture. Good Jewish man loved God, loved the word of God, 
was a man that was, even though he, I'm sure he respected the king, but he knew this is my land and God has forbid me to give it or sell it to the king. And so he told him, no, can't do it. He, he was going against a very wicked king. I mean, this king wasn't known for his love of God. He was going against a wicked king and he knew behind the scenes, I'm sure everybody in that day knew there's Jezebel. But he said no because he knew that I, the Bible has told me, the scriptures that they had had said, I cannot do this. And so if the Lord forbids it, I'm not going to do it. Boy, what a good lesson for us from this guy named Naboth. That if God's against something, we shouldn't do it no matter what pressures are out there. And he says no. You know what Ahab did? If you've read the story, you know he started pouting like a little kid. I just picture him. Because I, I picture maybe my boys when I tell them no, but uh, stomping their feet, his feet, and he went back there. And, and the Bible says that he was, I mean, the Bible didn't use the word pouting, but he laid on his bed and turned towards the wall and wouldn't, I mean, who, who does that? If you don't picture like a 9, 10, 11 year old kid right now just laying against the wall, pouting with his arms crossed, I can't cross my arms because of this microphone, but his arms crossed, lip out, pouting. I mean, he is just um, torn up about this vineyard because he couldn't get it. Didn't get his way. Well, then in the story, here comes Jezebel. Of course, Jezebel's like, she's kind of the boss of that home, it seems as if. And so verse 5, Jezebel's wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? He's not even eaten, by the way. I'm not even going to eat. This, my life is done. I don't get to have this vineyard. Who cares? But he's throwing a fit. And he said to her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard to Naboth the Jezreelite. So he says, she's like, Get up, you're the king. She just sounds, I mean, she just sounds very difficult um so she's like just you're the king just get up i'm going to give you this vineyard and she sets up this this plan people lie against naboth she has naboth killed killed so she can just take the land and then she says to ahab here it's yours what a wicked lady how is this going to happen this guy was naboth was a godly man he was just following what god says and now he's dead and I'll tell you what, you can get into a lot of questions here. Why did God protect Elijah a couple chapters ago, but not protect Naboth here? Well, if you go down that road, people do. There's a lot of whys. Why this? Why this? Here's the answer. I don't know. Don't know. And anybody that tries to say, well, here's what we don't know. In times, God says, I'm going to protect him. Go hide by the brook chair. Could God have said, Naboth, go hide by that brook chair? Could have. He didn't. Instead, he welcomed Naboth to paradise then. He welcomed him to heaven. He let him die. He stood. But think about it. We're still talking about some guy named Naboth that owned a vineyard thousands of years later. We're learning from his life. I remember as a kid hearing a message about Naboth that, changed, that impacted me in a great way from Brian McBride. And Naboth, he's been in heaven. He's enjoying himself. So I don't know the whys and all of that, but I know that, that Naboth ended up with a pretty good deal. He got to be with, with the Savior. But, it, but what happened then? What's God's revenge? Well, look at verse 17. It says this. So God, you know, God allowed that to happen, but God's not going to let things happen to his children without some consequence. Verse 17, 
And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he is gone down to possess it. And thou shalt speak at him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed, and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak at him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. <laughs> Pretty strong message, huh? God says, you're going to die. You're going to die in that exact place where you guys killed Naboth. Your time is up. And it's, it's interesting, of all of the wickedness that Ahab and Jezebel have done, God finally said, I've had enough. This is it. Naboth, you've taken his vineyard, you've killed him. He said, that's enough. And Ahab said to Elijah, hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to the work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will make thine house as to the house of Jeroboam, and thy son Naboth like unto the house of Baish. And he goes on. And he, and he said, well, let's go down to the end part of that verse. says, For thou hast provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city of dogs shall eat, and him that dieth in the fields to the fowls of the air eat. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to the work of wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. God's going to get his revenge. Remember the New Testament verses, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You and I are not to seek revenge, and that's tough. Very tough. But God says, I'll get revenge. Now, if someone's offended you, don't. I don't think dogs are going to eat them and they're going to die like that. Okay, so don't take this literal like that. And I got to always preface that. But God's going to take care of you. And God does say in the New Testament, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You and I are not to get bitter and try to get revenge. We are to yield ourselves to God and give it to God. Let Him take control. It's difficult. It's, it's so easy to say that. It's very, it's very difficult to live that. But we are to trust God. Now, I'm about to wrap this up, but I'm going to give you a verse that is the worst thing to do to give this to you at the very end of the Linda whole lesson, the whole series. I'm going to give you a verse and say, hey, go do with that what you think, all right? And here's the question I'm going to give you. Ahab, we've already said this, all right? Ahab was a wicked man, right? Don't answer it out loud. Rhetorical question, I'm going to give you a verse. Will we actually end up seeing Ahab in heaven, though, one day? Now watch. At Bible college, guys love to debate this because of one verse. Let's look at it. You ready? I'm going to give it to you. Look at verse 29. It says, seest thou how Ahab, oh, let me back up, I'm back at 27, so I'm going to give you two verses, I lied, all right, maybe three. Let's go to 27, and it came to pass when Ahab heard the words that he rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went softly, and the word of the Lord came unto Elijah the Tishbite, saying, here's what God's saying to Elijah, seest how Ahab humbleth himself before me. Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring evil upon his house. And that's it. Now, 
I'm not going to teach on this because anybody that says they know what's going to happen, they don't in this situation. But I will say this. Ahab humbled himself. Did he not? That's an important thing. He knew the miracle-working God because he's been confronted with him many times. So did he humble himself to the point of repentance and turning to God in this moment? I don't know his heart. But he did humble himself here in a moment to the place, even the most wicked of kings, when he humbled himself in this moment, God said, I'm going to take away some of the evil I was going to do, and I will wait and punish, because God already knows what's going to happen. I will punish some of those down the road. But I'm going to take, because he humbled himself, I'm going to take some of that evil away that I'm going to do. If that's, that, it's said of that man that he is, did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than any other kings, but still when he humbled himself, a, one that's opposed to God, when he humbled himself, it made God pause. How much more the people in this room who, you're at Sunday school at 10 o'clock in the morning, how much more when you humble yourself and say, God, forgive me, will God not wrap your arms around you? You haven't killed anybody lately, have you? You haven't provoked God to anger with idols and all of this. And still, that guy, when he humbled himself, got it moved God. How much more you and I? I've always loved that verse. I don't know whether we'll see Ahab in heaven or not. But I've always taken a lot from that verse because when Ahab humbled himself, God, it got God's attention. And the Bible says a ton about humbling ourselves. The one of them is God exalteth the humble. Let's pray.